All right, open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 44, Genesis chapter 44. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have ones available for you. If you have one of those Bibles, it's on page 39. Last week, uh, I told you we're in a section here that that covers four chapters, and so we broke it up into two halves, right? Last week, we looked at uh, chapters 42 and 43. We saw this relationship between guilt and grace. Today, we're going to look at at the second part of this section, chapters 44 and 45, and we're going to see how God's, God's providence leads to preservation, I promise I won't alliterate through the whole thing, okay? Um, But here's a question for you. Have you ever wondered why you are, where you are, and when you are? Have you ever wondered why you are, where you are, and when you are? Today's passage is going to help us answer that question. Because we're dealing with God's word, I want to pray and ask his help. And then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Father, as we just prayed In Psalm 36, by your light, we see light. So we pray that that you would let the light of your word open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things here, that it would lead us directly to Jesus Christ, and that he would get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. How'd you get here today? How'd you get here today? I'm I'm not talking about whether or not you drove or you walked I'm talking about, I want you to think for a moment about the events of your life that have led you to this point. How did you get here today? What brought you here? For many of us, it's easier to answer how we got here. We can look back at the events of our lives. It's easier to, to, to answer how we got here than it is to answer why. And it's even more difficult for us to see how the events of our own lives contribute to those hows and the whys of other people around us. But here is, Lord willing, what we will see in, this, uh, in these two chapters today. There's not a single event in our personal lives that isn't part of God's greater plan for all of his people. There's not a single event in our personal lives that isn't part of God's greater plan for all of his people. Let's jump in. Genesis 44, verse 1. <clears throat> Joseph commanded his steward, fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry and put each one's silver at the top of his bag. Put my cup, the silver one, at the top of the youngest one's bag along with the silver for his grain. So he did as Joseph told him. At morning light, the men were sent off with their donkeys. They had not gone very far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, get up, pursue the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Isn't this cup that my master drinks uh, from and uses for divination? Sorry. Isn't this the cup that my master drinks from and uses for divination? What you have done is wrong. When he overtook them, he said these words to them. They said to him, why does my Lord say these things? Your servants could not possibly do such a thing. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver that we found at the top of our bags. How could we steal silver or gold from your master's house if it's found with one of us your servant if it's found with one of us your servants he must die and the rest of us will become my lord's slaves the steward replied what you've said is right but only the one who is found to have it will be my slave and the rest of you will become blameless will be blameless now if you missed last week we ended the scene 
with the, with the brothers all enjoying this feast with Joseph after they had returned from Egypt with Benjamin as he had requested. And Joseph had released Simeon back into their care because he held Simeon in bondage until they brought Benjamin back. But none of them had realized that this was Joseph yet, right? All, for all they know, he's, he's the second most powerful man in all of Egypt, and he's Egyptian. But Joseph hadn't finished uh, uh, testing his brother's integrity yet, and they still needed to go back to Canaan with the food that they came for because there was still a famine going on, right? And so Joseph set up this scenario that would force them to return to Egypt sooner than they had before. Remember, they waited until all their food ran out last time before they came back. Well, he wants to bring them back, and this is what he did. He set them up. He had, a, he had their uh, silver put in their, back in their bags like he did the last time, but then he wanted to single out Benjamin so, that he, so he had his, his silver cup placed in Benjamin's bag as well. Joseph instructed his servant then to tell his brothers that he used that cup for divination. Now, this was a common practice in the ancient Near East where a priest or a leader would place objects and liquids in a container, look in it, and then, uh, and then try to, to discern or try to, to predict the future, okay? Maybe go try that sometime, see how that works. We've already seen Joseph's total reliance on God for revelation as we watched him interpret the dreams of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker and then of Pharaoh. You remember what he said? Don't all, uh, doesn't all revelation belong to God? Don't all interpretations belong to God? There's no cup in his hand when he's doing that, right? So chances are he's, he didn't really use this cup for, for divination, but instead he wanted his, he's, he's, he's doing this ruse, right? He's, he's, he's still disguising himself so that he's trying to bring out the brother's true character. And so chances are he wants them to think that he, had, he did have supernatural discernment as an Egyptian official, uh, official. But the irony here is that this so-called divination cup would provide the means for Joseph to actually find out what he was wanting to know, right? No, it's just a thing. Note the content, though, of the accusations in verses 4 and 5. The steward was told to ask the brothers, why would you repay evil for good? Why have you repaid evil for good? And then he was to say, what, what you have done is wrong, right? These are heavy accusations. These are, these are uh, uh, severe things that he's accusing them of. Literally in the Hebrew, he says, what you have done is evil, evil. Now, in the immediate context, these accusations were referring to the stolen cup, right? That's what the whole thing was, was set up uh, to, to reveal. But we know, along with Joseph, that there's a greater offense that the brothers had committed, and they sold Joseph into slavery and lied to their father about it, right? This is the thing that, that's been the underlying, like, thing the whole time that Joseph's trying to draw out from them for, to see if they had uh, had any remorse over it. When the brothers heard the steward's accusations, they were thinking not about what they had done to Joseph, but they were thinking about what, like this, this scenario that they're in now. There's a cup in the bag, right? Or, or, well, actually, they haven't found that out yet. But they're thinking about this immediate context. They're thinking about the accusations that he's making. What, you, what you've done is evil. And they knew without a doubt that they hadn't done anything wrong right? And so they appealed to their integrity, their honesty by reminding the steward, like, listen, we brought the silver back last time when we found it. 
Like, we didn't keep that. If we return wasn't, what wasn't ours the first time when we, when we realized we had it, why would we turn around then and steal from this, this Egyptian ruler who's been so gracious to us? This is their argument. They were so confident of their innocence that they, listen, don't make rash vows, okay? They were so confident of their innocence that they vowed the death penalty for the guilty man and slavery for the rest of them if the cup could be found among them. Now, they knew they were innocent. In their minds, there's no way what they just said was going to happen because in their minds, nothing was there. They didn't take it. The steward also knew they were innocent, right? But for different reasons, Joseph had told him what to do. He's the one that put the cup there in the first place. He knows where it's at. And he apparently knew that Joseph had no intention of killing any of them. There's nothing here to indicate that the steward knew that they were his brothers yet. In fact, we'll hear later that the Egyptians learned that. And so his, his punishment was a little less, right? He's like, hold on a second. Instead of killing the guy and you guys all becoming the slaves, just the guilty man will become the slaves and the others will go free and be blameless. Isn't that interesting? What you have done is evil. By the way, if the guy, wherever it's found, that guy's guilty. He's done the evil, but you guys are all good. You're blameless now. Brothers knew they were already blameless and they were ready to prove it. Look at verse 11. So each one quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. The steward searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers reached Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell to the ground before him. What have you done? Joseph said to them. Didn't you know that a man like me could uncover the truth by divination? What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied. How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servant's iniquity. We are now my Lord's slaves, both we and the one who's in whose possession the cup was found. And then Joseph said, I swear that I will not do this. The man in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace to your father. Can you feel the tension building because you know some things that the brothers don't, right? Can you feel the tension building here as the steward checks their bags one by one from oldest to youngest? How many brothers are there? There's 11 of them. Right? We're waiting for this to happen. We know where it's at, and yet he's checking oldest to youngest. He knows where it's at. Now, surely the brothers were, were surprised to find the silver returned back into their own bags, but in light of everything else, that's an inconsequential thing. That's not what the, what the main thing is. The main thing is, where is the silver cup? Who has that in his bag? And that was found at the top of the very last bag that was checked, the youngest brother, Benjamin. Notice the brothers' reactions when they saw the cup in Benjamin's bag. Don't forget, Benjamin is, is uh, Jacob's new favorite son because he thinks Joseph is dead. And they were jealous of Joseph. That's why they sold him into slavery. But what was their reaction when they saw this brother is the guilty one? They didn't yell at him, right? What are you doing? They didn't yell at him. They didn't accuse him of stealing it. Instead, they tore their clothes this was a common way to express deep anguish and, and, and grief over something. It's the same thing, if you remember back in chapter 37, that Reuben did 
when he went away and then came back and realized Joseph was gone from the pit they threw him in. He was going to rescue him out of the pit and bring him back to, to Joseph, uh, Jacob. But he was gone. They had sold him already. Reuben tore his clothes in anguish. It's the same thing that, Joseph, uh, that uh, Jacob did. When the brothers brought uh, Joseph's bloody robe back to him and said, here, you examine it. You tell us what happened. And he said, animals killed him. The father's in anguish over what he presumed is the death of his son, his favorite son. This tearing of the clothes is, is anguish. It's, it's, it's mourning and sorrow. The brothers were mourning over Benjamin's plight here. They actually cared about what was going to happen to him. And instead of abandoning him like they callously did to Joseph way back when, they showed their grief by tearing their clothes. And they showed their support by returning to Egypt with their brother. We'll go with you. We'll go with you. In verse 14, the author Moses singles out Judah from his brothers in the narrative. He said, he said when Judah and his brothers entered Joseph's house, reached Joseph's house, the mention of Judah right there is a cue for us. The author's anticipating this special role that Judah is going to play now among the rest of the brothers and in the rest of this narrative. Notice that Judah is the one who spoke on behalf of all his brothers when Joseph questioned him. Judah's important now. Again, Joseph questions, Joseph's uh, questions had an immediate context and then a, a greater context. The immediate context was in reference to his divination cup that was found in Benjamin's bag. But Joseph's greater focus this whole time, we know this, right? He's testing his brother's integrity because he knows what they have done to him two decades ago. And yet they've been hiding that truth. They've been hiding that truth. This question in verse 15 pressed deeper onto their consciences and made them consider more than just the silver cup. What have you done? What have you done? That's such an open-ended question, isn't it? Didn't, I, didn't you know that I could uncover the truth? That's what he says. What have you done? Now, these questions also draw us in as readers into the narrative as participants and not just bystanders. What have you done? What have you done? It's the same question that God asked Eve in the garden back in chapter 3 after she and Adam tried to hide the truth of their sinful rebellion against God. It's the same question God asked Cain in chapter 4 after he tried to hide the truth that he murdered his brother Abel. It's the same question that's asked of each of the patriarchs, Abraham in chapters 12 and 20, Isaac in chapter 26, and then again of Jacob in chapter 31. And each time that question, what have you done? What have you done? Each time that question is asked in order to expose someone's deceptive and sinful behavior. What have you done? Don't you know the truth will come out? Don't we know that God is able to uncover the truth? Don't we know this? He did it in the garden, and he's done it ever since because sinful and deceptive behavior has perpetuated throughout all of humanity ever since. And God's chosen people are no exception. When Moses' original Israelite audience heard Joseph's question, what have you done? Boy, they had some answers, right? 
Surely they would have been reminded of how their ancestors had built and worshipped a golden calf shortly after God had brought them out of Egypt, or how they had refused to enter the promised land and wanted to go back to Egypt because they were afraid of Canaan's inhabitants, even though God promised to deliver them, promised to give them victory. Or how about how they complained about the manna and the quail that God provided for them while they were in the wilderness? Or how about when they tested God and grumbled against him when they had no water? Or how about when Moses himself, their leader, disobeyed God and struck the rock when he was instructed to speak to it for the water to come out. As this new generation of Israelites prepared to enter the promised land that their parents and grandparents had been excluded from because of their sinful rebellion against God, surely they would have heard Joseph's words here and remembered that God is the one who continually uncovers the truth. They can't hide it, right? Nothing they did would escape God's sight. But it would also be a reminder of why God uncovers the truth. Because there's more to this story, right? God uncovers the truth so that his people would live before him in humility and in dependence upon him, in repentance and holiness. God's not just a God who rightly calls us out on our sin. He's also a God who redemptively calls us to repentance and reconciliation. When we hear Joseph's question, what have you done? And we remember that God always uncovers the truth, that that nothing is hidden from him, then we also must answer along with Judah. What can we say? How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed our iniquity. Judah and his brothers knew that they were innocent about the cup, but they also knew that they were guilty about what they had done 20 years ago. Can you imagine as the Lord graciously but, but consistently, like we talked about this last week, presses on your conscience, reminds you of the sin that you have yet to confess, not to shame you, not to crush you, but to set you free from the bondage to it. 20 years, 20 years, they've been dealing with this. What have you done? They know they're innocent about the cup, but they know they're not innocent as human beings. They know that God himself has done something to expose their sin. They knew they were guilty, and God had exposed that guilt to them. So speaking on behalf of his brothers, what did Judah do? He repented. He repented He agreed that God was right in exposing the truth, and he confessed their wrongdoing. How would you answer Joseph's question? What have you done? What have you done? Would your answer sound like Judah's, or would you try to plead your own innocence and justify yourself before God? When God exposes our iniquities, he's always right about them. Always. It's foolish for us to try to cover them up, but but listen to this. God uncovers the truth about our sin in order to then cover us with grace. God uncovers the truth about our sin in order to cover us with grace, to draw us, not, not in fear away from him, but in freedom to him because of Jesus. It would be foolish for us to try to justify ourselves when God himself 
has provided the justifier. Jesus Christ, the only one who can truly remove our iniquities and make us innocent, blameless before God. So why not let Joseph's question coax you to repentance instead of resistance? What have you done? What have you done? God already knows. And he's exposing that in your life so that you will run to him and not from him. Judah didn't spell out the things in detail for Joseph. It's pretty clear that he's not referring to the cup here in his own mind. But he says, we're guilty, and God knows it. Judah didn't know that Joseph already knew it, because he didn't know it was Joseph. But Judah knew that he and his brothers could not and should not hide their guilt from God. And so they repented. They submitted themselves to the consequences. They said, the Lord is right. He's exposed our iniquity. We're guilty. But remember what the steward had told them. Only the one who's found to have the cup will become a slave. The rest of you will become blameless. And then look at what Judah said in verse 16. He said, we are now, my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup was found. Judah and his brothers were willing to bear the guilt and share the punishment with Benjamin. Again, they had an out. They didn't take it. They stayed with their brother. They didn't leave him to bear the guilt, take the punishment for all of them. This is more evidence of what God does. This is what grace does to hearts, transforms them. This was promising to Joseph, but he needed to be absolutely convinced. So he offered them an out one last time. In verse 17, he said, no, no, no. The younger brother will become the slave while the older brothers went home go home to, the, to their father. What does that sound like? That was his situation, right? He was the younger brother. They threw him in a pit. They sold him to, to the Ishmaelites to become slaves. And what did they do? They went home to dad. Joseph's saying, listen, here it is. This is the test. Are you going to do the same thing to, to Benjamin that you did to me? They don't know all of this because they don't know that this is Joseph. But this is the test. Now that the brothers had been given an out directly from the man who was in charge of Egypt, right? That the steward gave them the out the first time. But now this is number two in all of Egypt. Now he's giving them the out. If they have a chance, this is the one to take, right? So the question is, do they hand over their father's favorite son this time like they did last time? Let's find out. Look at verse 18. But Judah approached him and said, My Lord, please let your servant speak personally to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, for you are like Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, My Lord. We, we have an elderly father and a younger brother, a child of his old age. The boy's brother is dead, and he is the only one left of his mother's sons, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him to me so that I can see him. But he, we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he were to leave, his father would die. When you, then you said to your servants, if your younger brother does not come down with you, you will not see me again. No Benjamin, no food. This is what happened when we went back to your servant, my father. We reported to him the words of my Lord, but our father said, go again and buy us a little food. We told him we cannot go down unless 
our younger brother goes with us. If our younger brother isn't with us, we cannot see the man. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One is gone from me. I said he must have been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him again. If you also take this one from me and anything happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs down to Sheol in sorrow. So if I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, his life is wrapped up in the boy's life. If I come and your servant, uh, to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, when he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. Then your servants will have brought the gray hairs of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. Your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, if I do not return to him, return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. This is the longest recorded speech in the book of Genesis. And it comes at a pivotal moment and reveals the answer to what Joseph had been wondering all along. Judah was the one who had proposed to sell Joseph into slavery nearly 20 years prior to this moment. Judah was the one. He may have saved Joseph's life by doing so, because they, they all planned, had originally planned to kill him. But Judah's motive was selfishly to get rid of the brother that they hated, and then also callously to turn a profit from it at the same time. Like, Listen, guys, there's a better way to do this, Right? But the Judah we see here is not this same selfish and calloused man. Let's look at the evidence of his changed heart. You notice the humility with which he approaches this man of Egypt. Over and over again, he addressed Joseph as my Lord and himself and his brothers and his father even as Joseph's servants. My Lord, your servants. This is in direct fulfillment to the dreams that God gave Joseph back to Back in chapter 37. Remember when they're like, hold on, you expect us to bow down to you? Well, they did that twice in the last chapter and another time here. And now he's, he's, he's doing it in attitude. Everybody in the family is now in service to Joseph. We're your servants. And as Judah recounted the events, he was very careful to leave out the parts about Joseph accusing them of being spies, of imprisoning Simeon, and of threatening them with death if they didn't return with Benjamin. He left those parts out. They all know that happened, right? Remember that Judah had no idea that he was talking to his brother here. He believed that Joseph was the most, second most powerful Egyptian in all of Egypt, and he took great care to avoid offending this man by implying that he had done something wrong. And he took all the guilt upon himself and his brothers. Look at how Judah described the relationship between Jacob and Benjamin. In verse 20, Judah noted Jacob's love for Benjamin. And in, then in verse 22, and again in verses 29 through 31, Judah emphasized the depth of that love by saying that if something happened to Benjamin and he was unable to return to Jacob, that it would bring Jacob down to death. Why? Because his life is wrapped up in the boy's life. They're inseparable, and yet somehow, right now, they're separated, but only because he knows and expects that his son will return. 
But Judah wasn't envious as he told these things to Joseph. He was empathetic. And after Judah explained that he had become accountable to his father for Benjamin, you remember that last chapter? He told Joseph, please let your servant remain here. He's talking about me. Please let me remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. In place of the boy. And Judah's reason for this request, I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father if I went back without Benjamin. When Judah had sold Joseph into slavery, he didn't care about his brother's well-being. He didn't care about his father's feelings. Here, here's his coat. You look at it. You tell us what happened. But here, there's no denying that his heart had changed. He couldn't bear, he couldn't bear the thought of separating his father from the son he loved so dearly. And so Judah, who once profited off of Joseph's slavery, now is willing to pay the price to set his other brother free. He's giving himself in place of the boy. And that made all the difference to Joseph. Look at chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph could no longer keep his composure in front of all his attendants, so he called out, send everyone away from me. No one was with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers, but he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and also Pharaoh's household heard it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But they could not answer him because they were terrified in his presence. Judah wasn't the only one with empathy. Joseph, if you remember last week, had already wept twice over them, at least twice over them, because he wanted to reveal his identity and restore this relationship so badly. But he needed to see if they had changed, if their hearts were where his heart was. Judah's speech proved that they had. And Joseph was so overcome with emotion because of it that he, he couldn't continue this ruse any longer. There's no need to. He's like, I'm done. And this time he sent all the Egyptians away so that only the Hebrews were in the room. And if you remember, all this time he'd been speaking through an interpreter. There's no interpreter this time. This brother's talking in Hebrew to his brothers without an interpreter. And he says, I'm Joseph. It's me. Is my father still alive? He knows that. I don't think he's asking them, like, you know, did he make it? He's probably shocked. Is it true? Is it true my father's still alive? Like, there's hope for me to see him yet, too? Now put yourself in the brother's sandals for a moment. This man who was the second most powerful man in all of Egypt just kicked everybody out of the room in an emotional fit after Judah stepped forward and gave this plea. Imagine the confusion that you would feel as you watched him begin to weep and then the terror that you would feel as he told you in your own language that he was Joseph and you had suddenly realized that the second most powerful man in Egypt was the brother that you sold into slavery two decades ago. Wouldn't you be terrified too? Like, oh, no. Right? Joseph quickly reassured them that they had nothing to fear. Look at verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near. I'm Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. 
And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. We've already seen repentance in this story. Now we see forgiveness. Notice that Joseph didn't deny. He didn't downplay their sin. He called it what it was. He said, hey, you guys sold me as a slave into Egypt. What you did was wrong. It was evil, right? He's not downplaying this. He's not, he's not overlooking it. He's, listen, love rejoices in the truth, doesn't it? He's calling them out. He's telling them what, what was wrong. This is the ultimate answer to the question that he asked in the last chapter that we just read. What have you done? He's telling them, this is what you did, and you know it. But he's not doing it with vengeance in his heart or in his voice. What they had done was wrong. They had repaid evil for good. They sold their brother as a slave. It's sin. It's, it's rebellion. It's deserving of punishment. But after he acknowledged that reality, Joseph directed his brothers from grief to grace. In verse 5, he told them, even though it was you who sold me here, it was God who sent me here. Even though it was you who sold me here, it was God who sent me here. He took the evil that you did and he worked it out for our good. Joseph told his brothers, listen, there's a bigger picture to all of this. There's a bigger purpose to all of this. Three times in these five verses, Joseph made it clear that he was convinced that God had sent him there. And he understood the reason why. Verse five, he said, God sent me ahead of you. Why? To preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. This is the good that God worked out in the brother's evil. In his sovereign providence, God was preserving his covenant people. What an encouraging reminder this would have been to the original readers, right? As they prepared to enter the promised land after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they were young children. Some of them probably weren't even born yet when God had brought their parents and their grandparents up out of Egypt. By what? A great deliverance. By plagues. By parting the Red Sea. Some of them weren't born yet. When it happened, they heard their stories, these stories from their parents. But when they watched as everyone in the generation before them died in the wilderness because they rebelled against God, because of the evil that generation had committed against the Lord. What do you think they were thinking then? Where's the deliverance now, right? But in his providence, God was preserving a remnant of people to bring into the land. He was keeping them alive because he was keeping his promises. But it wasn't long before 
people from that generation rebelled, and then people from the next generation, and the next one, and the next one, and so on. The Israelites as a nation in their history continued to commit evil acts and turned away from the Lord. And so he exiled them from the promised land that he brought them into, and he allowed foreign nations to come and capture them and take them away in slavery. But even during the exile, God sent people ahead of them, prophets who would, who would remind them of his of great is thy faithfulness, of his, of his faithful promises to keep his people alive, that he would not forget them, that he would preserve a faithful remnant, remnant to each generation, and that he promised to deliver them. A deliverance, a great deliverance is coming. And you know when that deliverance came? came when God sent his own son to preserve life by dying in the place of sinners, to bring about a great deliverance by taking on the form of a servant, becoming obedient even to death on a cross in order to free those held in bondage of slavery to sin. Though he was blameless, he actually could make a plea, but he didn't. He made himself accountable instead for the iniquities of others. And the cup was found poured out on him. The fullness of God's wrath, his righteous justice against the wicked evil of our sin, it was found with Christ. And it was found with him so that sinners could be made blameless through faith in him. And then on the third day, God the Father brought about another great deliverance when he rose Jesus from the dead to show that his righteous wrath had been satisfied and to establish a new remnant of people, not just from Israel, but from every nation, preserved by eternal life through faith in Christ, the risen king, the ruler over all creation, by sending Joseph ahead of, uh, to, to preserve Jacob's family, God was keeping his promise to send the serpent crusher ahead to preserve his family through a great deliverance. The events of Joseph's life were part of God's bigger plan. Have you been delivered? You've been delivered through faith in Jesus Christ, or are you still struggling in spiritual famine? Every one of us has repaid evil for good many times over in our lives. Every one of us has done what is wrong in the eyes of God, who is the holy creator of all and the ruler of all things. Hebrews 4.13 tells us, No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Don't you know that God is able to uncover the truth? God always uncovers the truth because God is truth. But he's also good. He's good and he exposes our iniquities in order to lead us to repentance so that we can receive his holy forgiveness instead of his holy wrath. There's no need to try to justify yourself because none of us can do it. None of us can justify ourselves to the God who knows our iniquities even more than we do. Instead, plead guilty. Run to Jesus by turning from your sins and trusting in his righteous life, in his sacrificial death, and in his justifying resurrection. All of these things are what make us blameless as we put our trust in him. 
If you're already a follower of Christ, are you living your life with a God-sent-me mentality? Are you as convinced as Joseph was that God has sent you ahead of others in order to preserve life? That he's providentially placed you here so that you can be a gospel witness to the people that you live next to and that you work with and that you run into at the sweet shop and Dollar General and Casey's and Joe's Pizza and, and all of these other places? If we as a church were absolutely persuaded, if we were convinced that God has sent us here, each one individually, but now together, because he has a remnant of people in this community and in this school district that he has yet to deliver from slavery to sin, how would that impact our gospel ministry in an area of spiritual famine? Are you convinced God sent me here? God sent us here. Joseph was convinced about God's bigger plan and purpose for sending him to Egypt, and so he wasted no time in obediently following it, calling his family to do the same. Look at verse 9. Return quickly to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me without delay. You can settle in the land of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, and your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and all you have, there I will sustain you, for there will be five more years of famine. Otherwise, you, your household, and everything you have will become de destitute. Look, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin can see that I'm the one speaking to you. It really is me, Joseph. Tell my father about all my glory in Egypt and about all that you've seen and bring my father here quickly. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin wept on his shoulders. Joseph kissed each of his brothers and, and as he wept. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Famine was going to last five more years. They're only two years into this. Making trips back and forth from Canaan to Egypt for food was not going to be sustainable for Joseph's family. So he told his brothers, go back to Canaan quickly, get everyone and everything and relocate here in Egypt so they could be near Joseph and survive. And after he laid out this plan to his brothers, they had this sweet moment of reconciliation together, weeping and talking with one another. And this is where, this is why it's helpful for us to keep this in the greater context. In chapter 37... We were told at the beginning there that, that Joseph's brothers hated him and could not bring themselves to, to speak peaceably to him. What are they doing now? This is not just a throwaway statement here. His brothers were talking with him. You see what God was doing? This is reconciliation. This is what grace does to the hearts of people. And it wasn't just Joseph's, or just the brothers who loved Joseph. Look at verse 16. When the news reached Pharaoh's uh, palace, Joseph's brothers had come. Pharaoh and his servants were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and go back to the land of Canaan. Get your father and your families and come back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you can eat from the richness of the land. You're also to, commanded to tell them, do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your dependents and your wives and bring your father here. Do not be concerned about your belongings, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did this. Joseph gave them wagons as Pharaoh had commanded, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave each of the brothers changes of clothes, but he gave Benjamin 300 pieces of silver and five changes of clothes. 
He sent his father the following, 10 donkeys carrying the best products of Egypt and 10 female donkeys carrying grain, food, and provisions for his father on their journey. So Joseph sent his brothers on their way, and as they were leaving, he said to them, don't argue on the way. (laughs) Joseph was the reason why Pharaoh and all of Egypt were doing so well during the famine, right? Pharaoh had been blessed beyond measure by Joseph's administration over the land, and so when he heard about Joseph's family, he was then eager to turn and bless them because of the blessing that he had received, and boy, did he bless them, right? Not only did he invite them to come to live in Egypt, but he offered them the best of everything the land had to offer. He also paid for the moving trucks, and, the, and he told them that to bring only what was important to them, and, and that he would furnish the rest when they got to Egypt. He covered all the travel costs to Canaan and back. And on top of Pharaoh's generosity, Joseph was also generous. He gave changes of clothes to each of the brothers who had once stripped him of his. Once again, evidence of what God's grace does to people's hearts. Joseph's forgiveness was genuine here. Now he gave Benjamin more clothes than the rest of them along with 300 pieces of silver, but there's no evidence here that in the text that Joseph was trying to provoke the others to jealousy. In fact, if we're looking he was actually the most generous to his own father. 20 donkeys loaded down with all the goodies from Egypt, right? The point here is that Joseph is generous to those who were cruel to him. Joseph knew how anxious his brothers could get, so he, as they were leaving back to go back to Canaan, he told them, hey, listen, don't argue on the way. There's no elaboration on that statement here in the text, but considering how we've seen them bicker, and blame and worry pretty much since they first sold Joseph into slavery back in chapter 37. It's likely that Joseph was reassuring him, listen, you guys, you're forgiven, okay? You don't need to point fingers on the way home. You don't need to argue and bicker about how you're going to explain this to dad, right? God is working out the details. Don't argue. It's not, it's not worth it. So how would Jacob respond Look at these last few verses, 25. So they went up to Egypt from Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they said, Joseph is still alive, and he's ruler over all the land of Egypt. Jacob was stunned, for he did not believe them. But when they told Jacob all that Joseph had said to them, and when he had saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to transport him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, enough, my son Joseph is still alive. I will go to see him before I die. Joseph was around 17 years old when his brothers sold him to the Ishmaelites. We're told that he was 30 years old when Pharaoh put him in charge of all of Egypt. Then there was seven years of abundance, and now we're two years into the famine. That means that Jacob had assumed that Joseph was dead for at least 22 years. At least 22 years. No wonder he's stunned when he hears, hears the news. His brothers have been back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And every time they're like, God, Dad, we got to take more brothers with us. And now they're like, hey, we found one. Right? He's alive. In the Hebrew, it literally says Jacob's heart was numb. Imagine believing that your son had been killed by wild animals, and then more than two decades later, you're told not only is he alive, but he's now the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. You'd probably be like, eh, that doesn't sound right. Right? 
But it was hard to deny what his sons were saying when Jacob saw everything that Pharaoh and Joseph had sent with them. Verse 27 says that when he saw these things, his spirit revived. His numb heart came to life and his sorrow turned to joy. You know what has has characterized Jacob's life for the past 22 years? Sorrow and fear and worry. His heart was revived. His spirit was revived. Back in chapter 37, when he thought Joseph was dead, Jacob tore his clothes and he mourned for his son for many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said. I will go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. But the moment that he found out and realized that his dead son was still alive, what did Jacob say? Yes. I will go down to Egypt and see him before I die. The man who'd been so reluctant to send Benjamin to Egypt now couldn't wait to go himself. In verse 28, the author calls Jacob by the new name that God had given him, Israel. It's a reminder that is, to his readers of the bigger picture. God wasn't just preserving an old man's life by reuniting him with his son. In God's faithfulness, in his providence, God was preserving his covenant people by sending them to Egypt and keeping them alive during a famine where he would grow them into a nation, Israel the nation of Israel, through which he would bring out an abundance of blessing to all people. There's not a single event in our personal lives that isn't part of God's greater plan for all of his people. In his faithfulness, in his providence, God has sent us here, here. He sent you and me here, in this place, at this time, in these circumstances, to point those who are dying in spiritual famine to the only one who can deliver them from death and preserve their lives. We will only submit to God's plans for others in this way to the degree that we realize and submit God's plan for us in this way. Are you living as someone who is convinced you are sent by God? Joseph gladly forgave his brothers and was confident that God intended to preserve their lives because he recognized that God had preserved his life. May we then live as people convinced that God has preserved us by his grace through his son and sent us ahead so that he can preserve others by his grace through his son. His son Jesus is still alive. Let's go and help others see him before we die. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it reveals to us your plan of salvation through Jesus Christ and him alone. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live as sent ones, people convinced that you have put us here in this time and place so that we can make this glorious deliverer known, recognizing that you've delivered us eagerly, ready to share the good news of deliverance to others. All for Christ's glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.